0: Thank you for joining us for episode 432 of Live Happy Now. We've heard that money can't buy happiness, but how does our perception of money affect our well-being? I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week I'm talking with author and lecturer Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, co-founder of the Happiness Studies Academy and creator of the master's degree in happiness studies. Tal is here to talk about recent findings that show our perception of money has changed dramatically and it's damaging our happiness. He's going to break down what this survey tells us and why it's so important to change our view of money for the sake of our well-being. Let's have a listen. Tal, thank you so much for coming back on Live Happy Now.
1: Thank you, Paula, for having me back.
0: This is a really interesting conversation to have because, as you know, Bloomberg just released a survey. And it had some really surprising results on people's perception about money, and it really showed how things have changed dramatically. I wondered if, to start it off, if you wanted to talk a little bit about what some of those findings were.
1: Sure. So the Bloomberg study very much aligns with what we've been studying in the field of happiness studies over the past you know, few decades, which is that people's perceptions matter a great deal more than their objective circumstances. So what they identified were people who were making a lot of money, Uh, you know, they were in the top 10th of the population in terms of income above $175,000. And yet, a large minority were feeling poor, and the majority were not feeling comfortable about how much they were making. Now, most people, probably around 90% of the population would say, you know, what are they about? They're, you know, they're spoiled and, uh, <laughs> you know, they have so much money. They they should be, first of all, grateful, second, happy. But they're not. They're neither. And the question is why? And the article, you know, the research tries to give the reason and they say, well, things have changed. And, you know, many people living in New York, for them, you know, 175 or 200,000 doesn't go far. At the same time... Many of them, you know, have homes that are paid off, so they don't have that, you know, that mortgage payment, and yet they feel the way they feel. And I think what's interesting to do, Paula, is for us to explore why. And uh, even more importantly, what can we do about it if we experience dissatisfaction? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, because yeah, that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you. And I wonder, too, if what has caused that mindset to change because a few years ago it was saying, okay, if you have an income over $75,000, that, that, that was what it took to kind of get you into a a good state of well being. And then 2021, a study came out and said, no, we need more than that. And so now we're looking at really dramatically different numbers. What has changed in the way that we're thinking?
1: It's a few things. The first thing is COVID. And, you know, it's easy to blame COVID for everything, but it really did change the world in so many ways and mostly not good ways. Mm -hmm. So, what did COVID do? It essentially took away people's sense of confidence in the status quo because suddenly this came completely unannounced and millions and millions of people lost their jobs. And, you know, even more extreme, many people lost their lives. Right. The sense of security. Was understandably affected. So, the question if before COVID, the question was, Am I making enough money to live well? The question post COVID for many people is Do I have enough money stashed away to survive a year without a job? Because that happened to many people. And even if it didn't happen to you, you read about people for whom it did happen. You know, this was real. This changes the numbers. Because while those who are making you know, $200,000 a year certainly have enough to live off, most of them would not be able to survive, certainly not with the lifestyle that they're leading if they lost their job and did not have that income for a year. And that became a reality.
0: And is there also a sense of fear of... In addition to having that money to live on, feeling like we're no longer being taken care of, I think there was a sense that we would always be okay. Like no matter what happened, someone will take care of us. Something's going to go well for us. And did we kind of lose that mindset?
1: I think so. So in the sense that when things are, are predictable, well, if we're taken care of in the past, we'll be taken care of in the future. You know, you just induce the future from the past. But suddenly, everyone was lost. I mean, governments were lost. I mean, we're still not sure today, did we do the right thing? Should have we been quarantined or not? You know, there are different models. The jury's still out and maybe we'll always be out on it. And yes, again, people lost their sense of confidence in the authorities, so to speak. Also in their workplaces, because even in the most reliable of workplaces, well, they had to lay off people. They didn't have a choice. They did that.
0: So, is it healthy to have that I've got to take care of myself mindset, or is it unhealthy because we are supposed to be connected?
1: So, it can go either way. COVID was a trauma, a global trauma, societal wide trauma. And the question is do we grow from that trauma or do we break down from a trauma? You know, in psychological language, do we experience PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, or do we experience PTG, post traumatic growth? And again, the jury's out on that. And not only is the jury out on that; it's very much dependent on individual perceptions and individual choices. Let's take two examples. You know, one example is of a person who, again, let's use the numbers in the, you know, in the research. You know, they're making one hundred and eighty, two hundred thousand dollars a year, and they're saying, "I want to, you know, live the same way." You know, I'm staying in New York City. I'm going to spend as much as I did before and see where that takes me. They're going to obviously be concerned because they know that if COVID happens again or something like that happens again, they are in in trouble. Another approach would be the world has changed and let me live more humbly. Mm-hmm. Let me maybe, uh, you know, not buy a new car or a car at all if I'm in the city. You know, a smaller home, or maybe I'll move. And this is something that they mentioned in the Bloomberg study. Many people are choosing to leave the city, and part of the reason, you know, they're moving to Texas, a because taxes are lower, b because your dollar goes a lot further there in terms of the home you can afford and even the restaurants that you can go to. So, they have, in a sense, learned a lesson and said, you know, we're not making, you know, $2 million, we're making $200,000. A lot of money can go a lot further elsewhere. Maybe we can even put more money aside. And even if, you know, disaster strikes again, financial disaster strikes again, we don't need to worry for a year or two because we have enough stashed away. So, these are two very different approaches. And by the way, which one we take, also depends on our personality. Are we more risk averse? Are we more thrill seekers? So it depends on so many factors. Is it, is it possible for me to move to you know, Texas or somewhere in Florida or somewhere in New York where I may not be in the city, but life is cheaper?
0: And it's accessible. You can get to the city. I think that's something too. You can find an area where you can access the things that you like about where you live, but aren't paying the kind of rents or mortgages that you would pay in a city?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm speaking here from personal experience. So we moved actually just before COVID, we lived in Brooklyn and we moved out of the city into uh, New Jersey. And we did it because we wanted a quieter lifestyle, Mm -hmm. of course, but also for financial reasons. Not that taxes are not high in New Jersey, they're extremely high. But certainly when it comes to accommodation, your dollar goes much, much farther when you're in the suburb. Of course, it is important to look at the big picture, to look at it holistically, WH, and to understand that there are individual differences. And, uh, you know, there are people who need the hustle and bustle and the, you know, the speed of the city. And there are people who would feel a lot more comfortable living, you know, by a quiet lake where, you know, where you hear the, you know, the water and the birds when you wake up in the morning. And, you know, different personalities, it has to do with introversion and extroversion. It also has to do with how you've been raised and what you're used to or uh, where you've spent the the past 10 years, because in a way, for good and ill, we become addicted to whatever it is that we're exposed to. And again, addiction can obviously be, be a bad thing. But, you know, if I'm addicted to the quiet and silence or I'm addicted to going to the gym three, four times a week, that's not a bad thing. All it means is that we have neural pathways that have been reinforced over time. But there is something else that I want to say here. It's not just what I desire to do or want to do at the moment. We can also bring about change. Specifically, we have become, as a society, addicted to noise, to novelty, to excitement, to the sensational. And that is why we keep on checking our messages online because we're looking for something new and sensational. And it's also why we get bored very quickly when we're sitting in our room and doing nothing or ostensibly doing nothing. And uh, you find more and more kids today saying to their parents, you know, I'm bored. And while, <laughs> And more and more adults, maybe not saying it, but feeling it and then immediately filling up that void that is responsible for their uh, boredom with something. And, you know, Blaise Pascal once said that uh, all of our troubles will be solved if we can find peace in solitude, in the solitude of our own room. And, and there is some truth to that. And the thing is that we can train ourselves to be less of sensation seekers and more at peace, quite literally, at peace with with ourselves, at peace with the absence of noise, with the absence of distractions. And that would be very healthy. And one way to do that is, of course, through practicing meditation or by practicing being bored, by practicing doing nothing. We can actually get used to it. And there are many upsides to silence, to solitude, to slowing down.
0: Yeah, it does. It absolutely changes your state. And as you talked about, we're a very distracted society. There's a lot of noise, a lot of things going on. And how is that playing into the way people perceive their finances and the economic environment around them? What role is that playing and how then do they step away from that?
1: Yeah, so you know, in 1954, a leading psychologist by the name of Leon Festinger coined the term social comparison. And again, in hindsight, it seems obvious, and maybe it was also obvious in the 1950s, but we compare ourselves and we constantly do it. It's part of our our nature to do that. And, you know, it's not good or bad. It's like the law of gravity. It's, It's a fact of nature. The question, though, is what do we do with social comparison? And how do we direct this need to compare ourselves? Do we, for example, compare ourselves to others? And that may drive us to do better and to improve and to learn from what other people are doing. Or do we become obsessed with what others have and can never be satisfied or happy because we don't have what they have? Right now, because of overstimulation, too much comparison, we... And I say we generalize, of course, not everyone, but in general, we have become, uh, again, addicted and dependent on being better than having more than. And this plays out in terms of the statistics that we're seeing now. Yeah, 180,000 is not a lot, really, when you compare it to someone who's making $1.8 million. Right. It's nothing. And there are many people who make that. And there are also many people who have billions of dollars. And we're exposed to all of them day in and day out through the media, through social media or through the newspapers that writes about, you know, the very wealthy celebrities. And suddenly what I do, oh, wow, or what I make is so little. Whereas in the past, uh, let's say when you lived in your village, first of all, there was less discrepancy about what people made. But even the wealthy ones, first of all, they were not in my face all the time. Right. The news. They weren't is on TikTok showing
0: their latest acquisition, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And also, there were many others that I compared myself to. Again, this is something natural who had as much or less than I did. So I felt okay when it came to social comparison. Also, you think about advertising. Advertising has one goal to sell. Now, how does it get you to sell? It takes this. Tendency towards social comparison and exploits it. Oh, you don't have this new car yet? That means you can't be really happy because look at how happy those beautiful people driving that car are. Um, and then you get that car, but there, there are always new ads coming on and luring you. You know, the sirens are calling you to get the next thing. And then we experience what Nathaniel Brandon, the psychologist, called the nothing is enough syndrome. Nothing is enough materially, and because mind and body are connected, nothing is enough psychologically.
0: And what does that do to our happiness when we are focused on our lack, the fact that we don't have enough money, even if that's just a perception? How is that undermining our
1: well-being? In the exact same way that objectively not having enough for our livelihood would uh, would influence our happiness. Because people who, who, who don't have the basic needs, of course, that's going to affect their impact. You know, poverty influences people's happiness. If, if I know that, or if I don't know, rather, how I will get food on my table for myself, for my family tomorrow, that I'm going to be concerned. I'm not going to sleep well. I'm going to be unhappy, obviously. In the same way, people who actually have enough, objectively, even if they have enough for the next year, To live off but their perception is the perception of lack their happiness is going to be influenced just the same why because happiness depends much more on our state of mind than the state of our bank account and again with a caveat here i'm not talking about extremes extreme actual poverty will lead to unhappiness and for those who are experiencing it or for us we have a responsibility To alleviate that condition, that goes without saying.
0: And so, what do people focus on? Here's where the professor really comes out. (laughs) So, what are the steps that people can take? How do they change their relationship with their perception of what is enough? And what do they focus on instead to start making a
1: shift? You know, um, Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, who's really the father of cognitive psychology, says that one of the things that we can do is imagine ourselves without the things that we have we're so focused on what we don't have let's think about what we have and imagine ourselves without it so you know i have you know food on my table imagine if i didn't have that food well that will make me more appreciative of the food that i do have or uh, you know i do drive a car yeah i don't drive the latest model and fastest one but it takes me from point a to point b how convenient how wonderful and uh, not to mention to become more appreciative of the things that don't cost money, such a, whether it's, you know, friends or family or health or nature, you know, the gift that we received from uh, evolution, God, you know, take your pick.
0: So what are ways that people can start creating some sort of practice because we're not going to just inherently say, okay, those were great tips. I'm going to start doing that (laughs) Mm. and everything changes. And it gets tough because we are going to slide back in and we are going to see that friend on TikTok who has a Lamborghini and we're going to be like, come on. So what are some practices that we can use every day to make this part of our insight?
1: I'm going to talk about some of the, the usual suspects here. Uh, because I don't think it's, it's rocket science. And the challenge is not understanding or knowing what we should do. The challenge is to do it and to do it consistently. And I will say a few words about that in a minute. But first of all, what are the things? First of all, regularly express gratitude. And the key with expressing gratitude is not just, okay, so I'm sitting down now at the end of the day and counting my blessings, writing down what I'm grateful for. We need to do it with what Barbara Fredrickson, the psychologist calls heartfelt positivity. So, you know, this is a practice that I've been uh, doing since the 19th of September, 1999. And I do day in and day out. The key, especially when you've done it often, is to really feel, experience, and savor what it is that you're grateful for. So if I write down, you know, my daughter, and it's not just, you know, writing down, you know, my daughter or her name, it's writing it down. And then I shut my eyes and I imagine... Her. I see her in my mind's eye and feel the love.
0: I love that.
1: And there are so many reasons why this works so much better than just going through the motion. Or let's say if I, you know, write a meal that I had with a colleague, which was lovely. I actually close my eyes and transport myself back to that experience, re-experience it. And it's when we experience this heartfelt positivity as opposed to just, you know, cognitive. Posit- positivity. That makes a big difference in terms of the impact that it has on us. So, this is one practice. The second practice, going back to sensationalism, I'm taking it from the work of uh, Osho, who was a spiritual teacher, but also from the latest research on meditation. We can shift away from the need for sensationalism if we become more mindful of sensations. So if I sit down and focus on the air coming in through my nose and, you know, leaving through my nose and this tingling, whether it's in, you know, my nostrils or my fingertips, if I focus on that, there's so much happening there. If I learn to focus on it, I become more sensitive. And when I become more sensitive, I'm more aware of sensations and therefore less dependent on sensationalism, which is sensations taken to the extreme. And again, this is not just an, you know, etymological wordplay. This actually works. Mm-hmm. But we need to put time aside for that. by I live in any city and I'm outside being constantly bombarded by these distractions, which, you know, noise, uh, colors, uh, plus I have my smartphone with me all the time that is provide me notifications or messages, I I become addicted to those. The antidote, just like the antidote for taking things for granted is gratitude, the antidote to sensationalism is learning to focus on and become aware of, mindful of sensations.
0: That's incredible. I love that. And I know that we do have to let you go, but I really want you to put in perspective for us how imperative is it that we get our mindset about money in line for our overall well-being? Like, where does that fall in importance?
1: You know, we have within us, again, whether it's the creator put it in us or evolution put it in us, the need to accumulate. It's understandable because in the past, you know, humans really didn't know whether they would survive the next winter or they only survived it if they accumulated. Unfortunately, for many people, this is still the reality. So this is, again, part of our nature. Good, bad, both, neither. The question is, what do we do with that? Do we take it to the extreme? And then that means even people who are making, objectively speaking, a lot of money still feel that nothing is enough. Or do we um, write about it, think about it, talk about it, find a more rational evaluation of what we have. So that's the first thing. The second thing, how about living a little bit more humbly? Because really, as we know from a lot of research, and you know, Paula, you've you've talked about this multiple times before. Yeah, when we get this new thing, bigger, better, brighter thing, we'll be happy for a week or a month. That's not the path to lasting happiness. So let's be more humble about our acquisitions. Let's be more humble about what we really need and spend more of our money and, more importantly, our time on cultivating those things that are free and yet so important, so fundamental for our happiness. Because spending time with my daughter or spending time going for a walk, playing with my pet, or reading a book, these are wonderful sources of what I've come to call life's ultimate currency, which is not dollars and cents, it's happiness.
0: I love that. Thank you so much for your insight today. This is an important topic because it affects all of us. We all have our own mindsets about it. And so I really appreciate you breaking it down for us and telling us how we can shift the direction we're going. We're going to tell our listeners how they can find you online and learn more about you.
1: Thank you very much, Paula. And again, thank you so much for all that you and your team are doing.
0: That was Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar talking about money and happiness. If you'd like to learn more about Tal and the Happiness Studies Academy or follow him on social media, just visit us at livehappy.com and click on the podcast tab. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all new episode. And until then... This is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.